Bring the good old bugle, boys, we'll sing another song. Sing it with the spirit that will start the world along. Sing it as we used to sing it, 50,000 strong, while we were marching through Georgia. Sang the chorus from Atlanta to the sea while we were marching through Georgia. Hello and welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. And in this episode, I'll be uh, continuing my look at the Library of America's anthology of Civil War writings, four volumes. We're coming towards the end of this series. Um, this particular episode will cover the May through June of 1864. So we're we're really uh, getting towards the end of the war and we'll we'll be there shortly um this episode uh or at least the documents collected in this part of the book which really is the meat of the overland campaign uh and the atlanta campaign um we're, we're coming up to an old theme an old theme in this series i, I thought the last um that last episode had a lot of interesting stuff from civilian point of view and i dwelled on those um um, we're actually some of the most interesting documents of this series, I think, were in the last set, uh, at least that I remember. Um, but this, the, the focus of this set of documents is really just going to be war casualties, the cost of war, um, because that last year of the war was, was pretty bloody. And, uh, you know, the entire war was pretty bloody, but the, you know, some of the worst battles in terms of body count came later in the war uh the most intense fighting came later uh, which i think that happens in war right um often um if you look at like casualties in world war one world war two they went up as the war became more and more intense uh that's and that's certainly the case here uh, and we feel it in these 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 documents and i don't have numbers here to back that up but it's just you get the sense of the like the fatigue and the the burden of war being felt more and more long dead are the ideas that like there's going to be a quick victory um and even though victory is closer uh the the fatigue and the the stress of of the bodies of the the brutality of the combat is is increasing um now it doesn't mean there's not uh there's not still jingoistic type of documents and, and documents uh you know, rah-rah type of documents, but it's, there's a bleakness to this set that, that I haven't felt for a while in this series. Um, anyways, we start here uh, with Herman Melville's poem, The Armies of the Wilderness. This is part of his battle pieces and aspects of the war, which was published after the war. Uh, of course, Melville had been more or less retired for a good 10 years at this point, but he did come back and he published poetry um, and a few other works later in his career. Um, you know, Billy Budd. I've talked about all this works before, but I haven't talked about Melville's poetry. And Library of America has published like a fourth volume of Melville's writings, which uh, I think is mostly his poetry. Um, this particular document, like many, I think, of the poems we've already looked at by Melville during, written during the war, are very pro-Union. And they are a bit on the rah-rah side of things, but it's also, it's got a bleakness to it, I think. For instance, this this stanza, the path down the moon 
mountain, sorry, the path down the mountain winds to the glade where the dead of the moonlight fight lie low. A hand reaches out the thin laid mold as begging help which none can bestow but the field mouse small and busy ant heap their hilltops to hide if they may the woe by the budding, budding spring lies the rusted canteen and the drum which the drummer boy dying let go. Dust to dust and blood for blood, passion and pangs. Has time gone back or is this the age of the world's great prime? And he goes on. The wagon mirrored and cannon dragged had drenched their scar. The plain tramped like the cindery beach of the damned. A sight for the city of Cain. Stumps of forest for dreary leagues like a massacre show. The armies had laid by fires were gums and balms did burn and the seeds of summer rain. Where do the birds and boys who shall go chestnutting when October returns? The nuts, oh, ere long they grow again. Unquote. Um, that's just two stanzas. It's a fairly long poem, but it's it's a desolate land. It's a landscape destroyed by war. It's the kind of imagery you get after um, when you think of World War One battlefields. You know, still scarred after a hundred years, um, and that's certainly what's on Melville's mind here. Um, yeah, it was a nice poem though, but really a focus on the destruction, violence, the blood, the death, the loss, and all that. Um, just to kind of follow up on this, then we have Ulysses S. Grant writing to Halleck and Stanton in Washington. Of course, if you've forgotten, Halleck was working in the in Washington, kind of chief of staff kind of person for the, for the army, and he reports on the wilderness battle. And he admits the heavy losses, um, but also the losses on both sides. He just says they're, they're heavy on both sides. Uh, to Stanton and to, to Halleck, he's a little bit more detailed. Um, said we lost, in, just in the wilderness battle, lost 11 general officers, killed, wounded, or missing, probably 20,000 men. That's what he says what, what they lost in, in this one battle. Um, and this is just the first uh, battle of the Overland Campaign. But he does say here, like, if it takes all summer, we're going to do this. This is this is the strategy, and we're going to fall through on it. And I think that's yeah, that's key to the success. It seems as, as brutal as as that sounds. I mean, maybe it even saved lives, like uh, in the long run, right? Maybe Lincoln was right all along, like with when he was the, the battle with McClellan and his uh, his campaigns. It's like if you you got to hit them and hit them hard and keep hitting them until until victories won. Um, uh, so next, we're just kind of continuing on the Overland Campaign, moving on from Wilderness to the Battle of Spotsylvania. And I'm, I'm going to pull up these battles so I can just uh, get some extra details. Um, another battle like the Wilderness Campaign. Um, the, the Army of the Potomac brought over 100,000 men to this battle. The, the Confederates had uh, around 60. Um, casualties, 18,000 Union casualties, 13,000 Confederate casualties. That's with some rounding. Um, altogether, uh, 4,000, more than 4,000 people died on both sides. Um, very, very costly stuff. Um, this particular document is, is Charles Harvey Brewster to his family, Mary and Martha Brewster. And he's writing from the 10th Massachusetts Infantry. And... As I've been suggesting, you know, there's a heavy focus here just on the casualties and loss. Um, he writes about this here. Um, the fighting was terrible. 
all day long on different parts of the line and thousands must have been killed or wounded on both sides but our immediate front nothing was done but heavy skirmishing when we had five wounded um, he talks also here about just the overall losses in in the battle um, it says our corps or the loss of this corps is greater than any other in the army the greatest in our division of our corps our brigade has lost up to this morning four, 541 and killed and wounded the vermont brigade is almost used up and it's reported this morning that there are but 900 left of it from fit for duty i don't know how many they started with but um yeah i mean just the focus on the casualties and how do you want to get that letter from a family member saying like everyone around me is dying you know a regiment lost half of its troops in this battle and we got another battle coming up tomorrow it's um it's heavy but the, the little bit of optimism or i guess uh rah-rah nationalism here is when he criticizes how the media describes soldiers he's criticizing the, the criticism of of the soldier soldier soldiers in the in the media he's standing up for them saying i wish the cowards at home who sneer at the noble army of the potomac might be forced out here to take their share of the luxuries of the officers come confound them it is outrageous and abominable that the army must be slandered and abused by the cowards that stay at home and cannot be coaxed or forced out here by the events now that the business seems almost winding up it seems almost as though the government that could not draft its own subjects to fight its battles is hardly worth volunteering to fight for i get enraged every time i think of it i mean how you know he's feeling a loss of like that fatigue is stretching over to the nation like a boredom of the war almost um and I, and I wonder if that's something that's happened in other wars, too. It's like the excitement followed by anxiety over success, cheering the triumphs, you know, the public supporting them, uh, win, lose, or draw. But after a while, no matter that once the outcome's decided, there's sort of a boredom with it, a lack of media. We know this is how the media functions sometimes, right? You know, just it follows the fads. It's got more interesting things to talk about somewhere else or whatever. And... and um, and he's, he's critiquing that but by and large this is uh heavy heavy focus on just the the, the cost of of this campaign so we get a confederate point of view of the same battle in the next document by a guy named caldwell um uh, about the bloody angle that was like the most intense bloody fighting of the battle of Spotsylvania. It was in a site called the bloody angle um this one brigade who was a part of lost almost 500 men in two days of fighting during the battle. Um, geez, this, this part of the battle alone cost the Union 6,000 men wounded and Confederates 8,000. So the bulk of those casualties of this battle were in this, uh, this location. Now, this particular source is from one of these post-war memoirs, like the history of the Brigade of South Carolinians. I'm always... Um, you know, these are troublesome, um, especially from the Confederate point of view, because the, you, you have the building of the Lost Cause mythology and some of these uh, memoirs. Some in some ways seem to feed into that, although we don't see that explicitly in most of the sources we're given. Um, but what's interesting about this is he does honestly talk about how demoralized the troops had become and how and this is of course you you have desertions is a big drain on the confederate army at the time i mean both sides are facing desertion but it, it each man lost is a bigger blow to to the to the confederates 
because they can't replace them. And this is coming out of the pressure that Grant is putting on the Confederates, that demoralization is worse because it's harder to imagine victory when the enemy keeps coming, keeps hitting you. It's part of the strategy, I think. He writes here that they seem to feel that Grant has had the hosts of hell in assault upon us. Um, but heavy, heavy losses. So that's another th uh, point. So that's, that's again, that's a common theme we see in a lot of these documents here. Um, the next one is is a slightly different perspective on things. It's uh, a rather interesting one, I think. It's from um, Edward Wilde writing to uh, Robert S. Davis. He was a physician, and he's, at this point, commanding a black uh, brigade, a brigade of black soldiers, I should say. And he's dealing with, like, a, an issue of discipline or violence, and... and, and you know the hand wringing. I talked about this last time. I think the hand wringing over how can, like slaveholders would be treated and their property, quote unquote, property would be treated or handled, was an issue early on in the war, and I think it becomes less of one. We talked about the that issue in Tennessee in the last uh, last episode, where a, a slave escaped, and you know the question is, do we is he freed or not? And I think the conclusion was, yeah, he's free. It doesn't matter what the Emancipation Proclamation said. Uh, you know, and he was able to say, well, the slave was cruel to, or the master was cruel to me. Um, here, we actually have this guy, William Clopton, taken as a prisoner. Who was actually one of the, a, mas a former master of one of the soldiers. And he was a cruel master. And this officer, in part on this, had uh, defended basically publicly whipping this uh, William Clopton who was a prisoner of war. I mean, in a sense, it's, it's a war crime, right, to abuse a, a prisoner of war. Um, but, but he justifies it, both because uh, he was a cruel master and, and I guess the broader context of the, the, the conduct between Confederates and black soldiers was already problematized by the Confederate policy of re-enslaving black um, soldiers who were captured. And he actually says as much here. Um, he says, I found half a dozen women among our refugees. So this is very intimate. This is very intimate and close stuff where you're capturing people who are like were victimizing or in some, you know, maybe raping, uh, brutalizing and enslaving soldiers under your command or other camp followers. It says, I, I found a half a dozen women among our refugees whom he had often whipped unmercifully, even burying their whole persons for the purpose in presence of whites and blacks and stripping them naked to whip them. If you know, if you want a visualization of that, uh, read uh, Frederick Douglass's account of the whipping of a woman uh, in his his first memoir. He writes, he, he, he justifies himself saying this way, he says, and now, th as this is the second time that Brigadier General Hinks has invoked the rules of civilized warfare and enjoyed upon us the exercise of magnanimity and forbearance, I would like to respectfully inquiry for my own information and guidance whether it has been definitely arranged that black troops shall exchange courtesies with rebel soldiers. And if so, on which side courtesies are expected to commence and whether any guarantees have been offered on the part of the rebels calculated to prove satisfactory and reassuring to the African mind. End quote. Very sarcastic and bitter, vitriolic, if you will, uh, speaking back to his commander saying yeah it's it's nice to say we should treat these people well but you know in this situation where i have in my power under my command victims of these people and i'm my men are supposed to like 
salute them or treat them with with dignity you know how's that going to work buddy really it's it's a it's a it's a powerful document um i think this is followed by a couple of documents um about the battle of russica russica it's part of the george the atlanta campaign this was a, a union failure but like the Overland campaign, this strategy was to put, keep pressure on them, and then, you know, eventually win. Put pressure on them till you win. Um, but this was a battle of Sherman versus Johnson. And as we suggested in the last episode, too, Johnson was able to get a little bit more respect from his troops than others. And he was a little more competent. So the, the defense of Atlanta was, was given to probably one of the better people who could, you know, who could handle that. But he was up against someone even better. But again, the, the focus of these documents, just heavy, heavy casualties, the dead on the battlefield, the littering of the, of the field with it. And just you just get this feeling of, of fatigue, I think. Maybe it's my fatigue reading all these accounts of, of the battle. That's possible. Uh, another document about the Battle of Pickett's Mill, which is another Confederate victory. Again, we're getting this kind of apocalyptic battle, battlefield uh, descriptions. Not that these didn't exist before. I just... They're just coming up to much more in, in this set of documents. He writes, about sun, in the, about sun up this morning, we were relieved and ordered down the brigade, and we had to pass over the dead Yanks of the battlefield of yesterday. And here I beheld that which I cannot describe, and which I hope never to see again. Dead men meet the eye in every direction. And in one place I stopped and counted 50 dead in a circle of 50 feet of me. Men lying of all sorts and of shapes, just as they had fallen. And it seems like they had been nearly all been shot in the head an equal number of them had had their skulls burst open and made, and their brains running out, quite a number of that way. I've seen many dead men, seen them wounded and crippled in various ways, have seen their limbs cut off, but I've never seen anything before that made me sick, like looking at the brains that these men did. I do believe that if a soldier could be made to faint, that I would have fainted if I had not passed on and got out of that place as soon as I did. We learned through Colonel Wilkes that we killed 703 on the dead on the ground and captured near 350 prisoners. Um, now, this is a battle I think most people don't know about. And I, I, I mean, even people who are somewhat aware of the Civil War, I'm not talking about the person who maybe only knows the Battle of Gettysburg. Uh, you know, I had to look up this battle. I forgot about it. I knew about the Atlantic campaign, but I didn't know about the battles of the Atlantic campaign. Uh, it's a, you know, a, by the standards of the early war, this would have been one of the major battles. But it's... Um, by this point in the war becoming sort of a footnote. And we can keep going on and on about this, document after document, focusing on just the, the cost of the war. Um, we have Richard Taylor giving a general order declaring victory in the Red River campaign despite inconclusive, uh, an inconclusive victory. We have uh, Charles Harvey Brewster uh, writing about uh, another battle in the Overland campaign from, we met him before, he was from the 10th Massachusetts, uh, talking about his fear and the horrors of the war. Eugene Forbes's diary from May of 1864, who he was captured in the Wilderness Campaign. Um, and he talks about the poor conditions in, uh, in the prison, the prisoner of war camp. Well, actually, I, sh I, should, folk I should dwell on this a little bit because this is the Andersonville um, prison, which, of course, was famous for the, the war crimes committed there and the heavy, casual the heavy loss of life of soldiers there. Um, I don't know that much about it. I presume 
the situations were so bad for the Confederacy at this time, even feeding their own army, keeping prisoners well fed probably was, was difficult not to uh, equivocate at all on, on, on this issue of war crimes. It's just, you know, it's hard to imagine they could have done much better than they, than they, than they did. Probably should have just let them go. Um, but yeah, Eugene's Forbes, he wrote his diary in there and he talks about, he was captured in the wilderness campaign. He goes on about the poor conditions there, um, the tunneling, the running away, and, and you just get a sense of how desperate things were, were there. It actually, it, we have to get all the way to Charles Francis Adams Jr. writing to his father to get a more, I guess, on the surface, optimistic account of, of this phase of the war. Um, now, Charles Francis Adams Jr. was uh, at this point in um, in the 1st Massachusetts Cavalry, kind of in the Army of the Potomac headquarters, so he's not so much on the front line. So he's giving a perspective from command, I suppose, and he's writing to his father in England. Charles Francis Adams was the ambassador, right? Uh, he talks about the importance of continuing the advance, his optimism over the victory, and the image of Grant as a, as a great leader who's going to push them over the edge into victory, um, despite him being kind of on the surface a bit of a, what he calls him, he calls him a comical figure. Um, he says, he sits as a horse well, but in walking he leans forward and toddles. I do too, by the way. So not to compare myself to Grant, but you can know, judge someone by how they walk. Uh, he has not nearly so strong a head and face as Humphreys, for instance, who at once strikes you as a man of force. In f uh, such being his appearance, however, I do not think that any intelligent person could watch him, even from a distance, as as mine, without concluding that he's a remarkable man. Yeah, I mean, and compare that to the very aristocratic nature of the Confederate officer corps. All right. So I think you get the point. I, I don't want to keep uh, dwelling on this, but we have other documents. We have a nurse's account of dealing with the wounded in the Overland Campaign, the conditions behind the lines for nurses. Uh, this is from the perspective of a Quaker woman who worked in the in the field hospitals, and just how bad things were in the areas that the army passed through. Um, yeah, Cold Harbor. Another battle. Yeah, let's just look at two more documents. Let's just look at two more dealing with an issue that I haven't said much about this episode yet. Maybe just a little bit because I, I did talk about the treatment of of black soldiers or the treatment of former conf uh, plantation owners or slave owners who were uh, captured. But first, we have Lorenzo Thomas to Henry Wilson, writing in May 1864. Um, he, Lorenzo Thomas was organizing black troops in the South. So, of course, there were those early, you know, those organized in the North among free blacks and, and runaways. Of course, those were also mostly organized by people who ran away during the war. Um, but once more and more of the South got occupied, then those former slaves were being recruited for, for battle. And Lorenzo Thomas was one of those people who did that. Um, And he's writing um, in response to a suggestion that black soldiers be disarmed. 
and used as labor. So he's going to defend uh, the virtue of black soldiers. And he, he picks up on something that we saw before with Harriet Jacobs. I think it was a big concern of, of abolitionists at the time, people pushing for black rights. Was It comes down to the nature versus nurture debate. Um, you know, the argument for slavery um, and for the Confederate decision not to arm blacks besides the economic necessity was that black people were incapable by nature of doing what white people can do, sacrificing themselves, serving in the military, being, having that virtue, whatever virtue soldiers apparently are supposed to uh, hold in the inside, inside. And then you got, but the, the you, you, you had to face the fact that even if you didn't agree with that, you had to face the fact that these were people who were shattered by the experience of slavery. Their families were broken up. Their education was stunted. Their, they were taught from a young age that they had to be subservient, that they weren't the equals of whites. So that, so then the, it's, it's more about like the, how blacks were nurtured under slavery than their nature. And he deals with that because it's, it's on their minds because it's, the, it's the way they respond to anti-racist at the time. Is what you're seeing is a corrupted mutant of, of, what, of, of a human being. Not, not one that's been fully allowed to develop. It's not even just that they haven't been allowed to develop. It's that they've been actively undermined in their development. But that doesn't mean they cannot overcome that. And the fact that they have overcome it in such large numbers so quickly is a testament to their, their character and abilities. He talks about black soldiers' pay, which I don't think has come up before in a document directly, but the, that they were being paid less. He addresses that. And he says, actually, we should be paying them equally. And he talks about the importance of black troops in general to the war effort. And finally, he brings up the Fort Pillow Massacre. And it's like the cat's out of the bag. You're, after the Fort Pillow Massacre, any uh, idea to demobilize black soldiers is, is farcical on the face of it. So that's uh, a rather powerful, powerful document, it was to me. Um, the other is, and the, the other issue here, the other document I want to focus on before I leave you is Judith. Uh, let me find it. Judith McGuire, uh, writing in her diary on June 11th, 1864. This is a civilian diary of a Confederate woman. That's the original source. And she is talking about the devastation of the countryside and the plantation sphere. Uh, this is in Virginia, so this is in the context of, uh, of the Overland campaign. And just how basically this is a is it's not just a physically devastated landscape. It's just evaporated of people. The men are gone at war or dead. The slaves have run away. It's empty. Uh, so scarcely a representative of the sons and daughters of Africa remained in that whole section of the country. They had all gone to Canaan by way of York River, Chesapeake Bay, and the Potomac. Not dry shot, for the waters were not rolled back in the presence of these modern Israelites, but in vessels crowded to suffocation in this excessively warm weather. Um, her language here is kind of interesting, where she takes on the language of like Old Testament anti-slavery rhetoric, right? Which, of course, many... African Americans incorporated their religion very consciously. The story of Moses—that's not the kind of—that's not generally how Confederates talked about slaves running away. They generally talked about them in terms of like it's a betrayal or they've—they've uh, they've been whisked away by rabble rousers. You know, 
not acknowledging their humanity. She does, I think, a better job of acknowledging their humanity than most Confederate voices we've seen here. Um, she says they're not going to be happy, though. She says they're gone. They have gone to homeless poverty, an unfriendly climate, and hard work. Many of them to die without sympathy. End quote. But they go, even if that's true. They they preferred that to you. Um, so, so that's it. So. Yeah, I'm kind of, I skipped over a few documents here just because it's just repeating that theme that 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 in this section is really uh, repeated again and again by soldiers' accounts of these battles in the Atlanta and Overland campaigns. Just kind of, I get a sense of fatigue and weariness and just rising costs and an impatience with that and, a, and an anxiety over what that's going to, you know, when will this end, right? It's the hardest point, right? It's like you're running a race and that that last quarter is, is the toughest because you see the ending coming and but it's worse than war right because people are dying it's like that all quiet on the western front adaptation they just did it's like imagine being the last person to die in a stupid uh, war i mean being the last to die in a good war is probably not that it's not yeah it's still pretty unlucky of you i suppose but you know I, at some point, even in a war that's justifiable, like like the Civil War, you, I mean, is there just a point where the the fighting doesn't make any sense anymore, right? I guess it's when the one side, when victory is clear on one side. Anyways, I don't want to get too much commentary on it. Um, next, we'll look at documents going up until well June to August, eighteen sixty four. So we'll, we'll continue. I, I'm guessing, well, it is going to be a little bit more of the same, but we have a little bit more diversity. Not quite so many documents from, from soldiers' point of view. So, um, so in a few days, I'll give you my thoughts about, about that. Um, so as always, thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time. For freedom and her train, 60 miles in latitude, 300 to the main. Treason fled before us, for resistance was in vain, while we were marching through joy.